Sarah, thank you so much. Um, such a pleasure to be back here with you. Um, I was so excited to see how much fuller this room was than when I was here six months ago. We've made it to the end of October half-term. Mums and dads, if you've had kids at home all week, well done. Um, but the thing about the end of half-term, it means it's almost time for pantomime season. So who here likes going to see a pantomime? That's the one. So one of my favourite things about pantomimes is obviously the audience participation. It's always the audience's job to make sure that the person up on the stage is safe and knows exactly the right things at the right time. So just in case... No, there isn't. But it's the audience's job to make sure no one's going to sneak up on the... Per- Oh, no, he isn't. Oh, no, he isn't. <laughs> it's Johnny. What are you doing here, Johnny? You've got to talk about Lazarus. No, Johnny, we don't talk about Bruno. No, Lazarus. Oh, Lazarus. Lazarus. Oh, I'm sorry. Yes, we do have to talk about Lazarus. It's really important that we talk about Lazarus. So do you spot Lazarus in our passage today? He was all over it. There, He was there in verse 1. Jesus goes to Bethany where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Or in verse 9, a large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there and came not only because of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. Or verse 17, now the crowd was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead, continued to spread the word. It's like every time John mentions Lazarus, we're meant to shout out in the true spirit of pantomime, the guy who Jesus raised from the dead. So maybe you can help me with this. Every time I say Lazarus today, you have my solemn permission to shout out the guy whom Jesus raised from the dead. Do you think you can do that? So if I say Lazarus, the guy who Jesus raised from the dead. Amazing. So make sure you're paying good attention because you might. I, I might just slip the name Lazarus in. The guy who Jesus there we go. The Great. So uh, let's go and see what this passage has to say. So you've probably spotted that this guy, that I'm, whose name I'm not going to say right now, um, he's kind of on John's brain, and he's kind of on the brains of everybody in this passage, because he points us to something really important about Jesus. If you were here a few weeks ago, you would have heard about how Jesus raised someone from the dead. But that gives us a really important question to think about. Who is this man that makes dead people alive again? And that's a really good question for us to ask too. Who is this man that can make dead people alive again? Maybe you've asked that question a long time ago and you reckon you've got the answer pretty sorted. Maybe it's the first time you've ever asked that question. Maybe you've never thought about it at all. And it's a really good question. Last week, if you were here, we saw somebody else's answer to that question. We saw the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling council. We saw what they thought, and that answer was really simple. It was simply, Jesus, he's a threat. He's a threat to national security. We have got to get rid of him. And that kind of makes sense. If you've got a guy going around raising people from the dead, well, your ultimate weapon at stopping people, you know, killing them, that no longer works. We've got to get rid of Jesus, they said. But this week, John shows us two more pictures of Jesus, two more stories from Jesus' life that John saw as an eyewitness. They're very different to each other, 
but they do have one thing in common that is really important that we get straight away. They are both stories about Jesus where the real meaning had to be explained afterwards. They are both stories where everybody's first impressions about what happened weren't quite right. Now, that's not just a thing that happens just in the Bible. It's not just people go around getting Jesus wrong. We get stuff wrong all the time. Maybe you were at the Bright Lights Bash last night and you were tasting lots and lots of Pringles and you just couldn't work out what flavour they were because you weren't allowed to see what the jar said. Or if, uh, an example from my own family. I have a very good relative of mine called Ali McGregor. And every time I tell people about them, they go, oh, they must be really tall and Scottish and play rugby. When actually, she's about five foot two and from Hong Kong. <laughs> First impressions can be misleading. Who is this man that can make dead people alive again? John's answer, your first impression might not be quite right, so we have to listen really carefully to what the explanation is going to be. So, can you listen really, really well, kids, today? So, who is this man that can make dead people alive? Two answers. Our greatest treasure and our greatest king. Number one, our greatest treasure. Starting at verse one again. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus... Still awake. Whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here, a dinner was given in Jesus' honour. Martha served, while Lazarus... ...was among those reclining at the table with him. Now, a quick geography lesson. Bethany is to Jerusalem, kind of how like Upton is to Northampton. They're kind of the same place, but they're, they're definitely different places as well. But they're really, really close. But look, here is Jesus out in public at a dinner party, just down the road from where all the Sanhedrin, the Pharisees, who had just said, we're going to arrest this guy and we're going to kill him. And he's out in public having a dinner party. But yet, that is not the biggest surprise in this little story. Have a look at verse 3. Then Mary took about half a litre of pure nard, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Just pause and take in this image. It's quite weird. When I get confronted with an image like this, I find it really, really helpful just to think about what my different senses would have seen at each point in this story. So maybe, if, if it's helpful, you can point to your eyes. We'll start thinking about what we, what we could see. So what would we have seen? Well, we would have seen a woman pouring something all over Jesus' feet. And then she takes her hair, undoes it, and starts wiping Jesus' feet with her hair. I mean, in that day and age, it was a definite no-no for women to undo their hair in public. But in any day and age, it's just plain weird to take your hair and start wiping somebody's feet with your hair. So how would people have felt on seeing that? Well, I'm a great believer that when words fail me, emoji are going to come to my rescue. So how would people have felt? Well, I think they would have felt... <laughs> they would be shocked. In fact, oh my, we just, we, we just don't do this round here. So let's, we thought about our eyes, let's think about what we would have smelt, our noses. Look back at verse 3. The guy who wrote this down, John there, who saw this, the thing he remembers was the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. How might people have felt? Well, they probably went. 
wow, that smells good. Or maybe, wow, that smells expensive. Because you see, what Mary has just done is really costly. We're going to see in a few verses time that perfume costs a lot of money. But it also has cost her her reputation. She has done something that people look at and go, wow, that's silly. Why did you do that in front of lots of other people? So why did she do it? Well, because she thought Jesus was worth it. Who is this man that can make dead people alive again? Well, Mary's answer was, well, because Jesus is the most treasured person in the room right now. My greatest treasure. And that, you know, that makes sense, you know. John chapter 11, she just watched Jesus raise Lazarus. <laughs> Still awake. Um, Jesus made her brother alive again when he was dead. And he'd been dead for like several days when he was beyond hope. And ha- Mary, Mary is really grateful to Jesus for that. But not everybody agreed with Mary. Let's keep going. What would we have heard Let's listen in to the conversation that follows. Look down at verses 4 and 5. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. Now Judas, he is not happy. He thought that Mary was being wasteful. That perfume was worth a whole year's wages. And according to the Office of National Statistics, a year's wages in the UK is about £38,000. That's a lot of money. I always like to think of things in terms of Lego. So the biggest and most expensive Lego set you can get at the moment is a Millennium Falcon. If you don't know what that is, come talk to me later. Um, But with a year's wages, you could get 51 of those. How much of your house you could fill with Lego with that? That's a lot of money. But more seriously... Think about how many starving people you could feed with that kind of money. How many homeless people you could take off the streets with that kind of money. Outwardly, it seems like Judas has got some kind of point here. But John also tells us what's going on on the inside of Judas. And it's not pretty. Have a look at verse 6. Judas didn't say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag... He used to help himself to what was put into it. Judas thinks that that perfume should have been sold for a lot of money, not to help people, but because he could then get some of that money himself by stealing it. Really, he's not happy because he missed out on a lot of money. Who is this man who can make dead people alive again? Well, according to Judas, you know, Jesus is a nice guy. He's not worth 38 grand. But Jesus has a reply. Verse verse 7. Leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. Now this is a really significant thing that Jesus says, so we better pay attention to it. Really listen. See, firstly, Jesus defends what Mary did. Jesus says Mary was exactly right to do something so costly for Jesus, to pour such an expensive perfume on Jesus. But he also explains what she did. And it is absolutely what no one expected. 
probably not even Mary herself realized this as she did it. What did Jesus say? It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. Well, we all thought our first impression was, oh, Mary's saying an extra special thank you to Jesus for raising her brother from the dead. But in fact, Jesus is saying, no, you've been previewing my burial. But then he says this as well, just in case it wasn't weird enough. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. Now, this bears a little bit of explanation. If you've been hanging around with Jesus and John's gospel for a while, which I know many of you have, you'll have realized that Jesus is both really smart and he really knows his Old Testament. And he's replying to Judas here with a very subtle quotation out of the book of Deuteronomy, which is way, way, way back near the beginning of the Old Testament. And it's a bit where God commands his people to look after the poor. You obey God by looking after the poor. But with this quotation, he's basically saying, well, you know, caring for the poor, that's a really good thing. It's obeying God. But for the short time that I'm here, it's more worthwhile to honour me. Now, that's a big claim. Jesus is saying he's a really big deal. Like not, not anyone can just go around saying that. You think that's the sort of thing Kanye West would go around saying. <laughs> not Jesus. But his big words are going to be followed by big deeds. We mustn't divorce what he said about his burial with what he's just said about the poor. His big words will be followed by big deeds. Jesus is saying, I am your greatest treasure. There should be no one more precious in the whole universe to you than me. But why? Because I'm about to die. I'm going to be buried. Who is this man that can make dead people alive again? Well, He's our greatest treasure. He was Mary's greatest treasure. He is our greatest treasure. But not for the reason you might think. Not because of your first impression. Not because he can just make dead people alive again. It's because he's going to die. Remember what we heard last week about the sovereign substitution. The swap where one man will die for the people. We're going to remember it when we take the Lord's Supper in just a moment. Jesus takes our sinfulness upon himself on the cross and we are given his body, his blood, his perfectness that we might live with God as our father and friend. And that is why we treasure him. But John has more to show us today. Jesus is our greatest treasure, but secondly, our greatest king. Our greatest treasure and our greatest king. See, John doesn't tell us what happened after that moment in the dinner party. But instead, something more interesting started happening outside. Verse 9. A large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there and came, not only because of him, but also to see Lazarus. Good Jesus rose from the dead. Well done. And straight away from there, the camera then goes from the dinner party over to Jerusalem, down the road, to the people who really want Jesus out of the picture. Verse 10. So the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well. I wasn't expecting that one. For on account of him, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and believing in him. These marauding crowds looking for Jesus are the last thing that the authorities want. And so they take a desperate step. They start to plan to kill the most inconvenient piece of evidence. And that is the man Lazarus himself. Yes, this is a desperate act. And it's the kind of act that only those people who are desperate to cling to power, 
only those kind of people who get rid of people who don't fit the narrative. And we see that all over history, both 2,000 years ago and in the modern day. We don't have to look very far across the world to see it happen. But with that kind of power, John wants to contrast that with a very different kind of power altogether. Let's look at what happens from verse 12 on the next day. So the next day, the great crowd that had come for the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is, the one, is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. So let's engage our senses once again to take in this picture and really think carefully about it. So let's start again with our eyes. What would we have seen? Well, firstly, we would have seen a great crowd coming who have come up for this festival. Now, this is different from the crowd that just crashed that dinner party back in verse 9. And if you'd read at the end of chapter 11, we heard about many going up from the country up to Jerusalem for the Passover festival. Jerusalem would have been heaving with people. And if you thought that last crowd that crashed the dinner party was big, well, this one is enormous. If uh, Josephus, a historian from the time, he talks about the crowds that used to go up to Jerusalem for Passover being over two million people strong. This is a lot of people. So if you imagine you packed out this room so that no one could move, I reckon that's probably about 500 people. And then you do that 4,000 more times, and that's still not enough people. This is a really huge crowd of people. But let's keep using our eyes, keep looking at what we would have seen. Verse 13. They took palm branches and went out to meet him. Now, I don't know many human beings who, when they want to say hello to someone, they grab bits of tree and take it with them. I know some dogs who do that. (laughs) But I don't know many humans that do it. But if you were living in that culture, in that time, in that place, it actually makes quite a lot of sense. See, the the palm branch, that is the national symbol of of Judea, of the Jews. Just as we put the queen's, and now I guess the king's head on our coins, on their coins they put a palm branch. It was their national symbol. So here you have a great big welcome committee armed with the national symbol coming out to meet Jesus. You know, it's kind of a way of saying, well, hello, you're our new national leader, aren't you? But let's keep looking at this. Mortifying, let's go from our eyes to our ears. What would we have heard? More in verse 13. They cry out... Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. Now, Hosanna, that is a Bible word for sure. But our Bibles give us a little bit of a help. If, if the, the, the Bibles that this church provide, they have useful little footnotes at the bottom just to help us. Um, and it says, Hosanna, it means save. And then the, the next line, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, that is from a psalm, a song in the Old Testament, the 118th if you're keeping school. It talks about God's coming king and his victory. And that's not just me guessing that that's what they thought, you know, from what the evidence I have now. It's what they say in the very next line. Blessed is the king of Israel. So as they're rolling out the welcome mat to Jesus, it's as if they're saying, oh, hi there, Jesus. Um, Can you come and be our king and make us a great nation again? You know, just like we used to be. Oh, and here is our favourite national song, all about the king who's going to rescue us. Hint, hint. But what Jesus does in response is pure genius. Firstly, he's practical. No one can address a crowd that is millions strong. So Jesus doesn't even try. He doesn't say anything. 
But instead, he does something, something that they can look at. And it's something extraordinarily simple. It only takes eight words for John to describe it in Greek. It only takes us nine words to read it in English. So verse 14, Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it. And you go, what? That's not what they want, Jesus. That doesn't look anything like a king. But here Jesus is really clever, playing with their expectations to teach them something. You see, there's been a really long history of kings showing up in Jerusalem. There was a guy called Judas Maccabeus, if that's something you're interested to, in between the Old and New Testament, who showed up to Jerusalem on a great big war horse. Or if they'd looked in their Old Testaments, they would have read in 1 Kings 1, Solomon turns up to be crowned on his father David's mule, a lowly beast of burden. But Jesus takes things even further than that. We had the verse from Zechariah at the start of this service, and John quotes it for us to help us see, to figure things out. There in verse 15, as it is written, Do not be afraid, daughter Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. Now, colt's just a young, another word for a young donkey. But Zechariah looked forward to God's king arriving in Zion, it's another name for Jerusalem, on a young donkey. And that's exactly what Jesus did. What does that show us? Well, it's showing us that Jesus is not like the kings of this world. He's not a big flashy conqueror who comes on on his shiny war horse. He's not even going to let himself look as good as Solomon, the greatest king of Old Testament Israel. He goes even lower than him. He sits on a small, probably quite skinny and rather mangy little young donkey. This is showing us that he is God's king. No one think, looks at Jesus and goes, that's a king, unless they listen to God first, because he looks exactly like the king God said he would send. Jesus rejects what the crowd wants him to be, but fully accepts what God says he will be. But no one realised this at the time. It had to be explained. Their first impressions were wrong. Verse 16. At first, his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize these things had been written about him and that these things had been done to him. It took the disciples a lot of work reading their Old Testament after all of this had happened, after Easter and the death and resurrection of Jesus, and remembering what they saw. And they go, ah, that lines up. The pennies dropped. He's the king. But we're not quite done. Look at what happens next in verse 17. Now the crowd that was with him, so this is the old crowd that crashed the dinner party, when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead, continued to spread the word. Well done. <laughs> Many people, because they had heard that he had performed this sign, went out to meet him. So the Pharisees said to one another, see, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. We feel their frustration. We meet the Pharisees, the same folks who've been trying to get rid of Jesus and the guy he raised from the dead, and they are at their wits' end. People just keep going after Jesus. They can't stop it. We've got the crowd that saw the raising of Lazarus, joining up with this mega crowd who are there for the Passover, and they just despair. This is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. Now, you could imagine the police today saying 
something like that about the kind of guys, kind of the heroic revolutionary type, or maybe the really, really terrifying gang leader. But look who they're actually saying this about, the Pharisees, way to about 2,000 years ago. They're saying this about a man who rode into town on a major little donkey. He probably didn't look that different from a guy who probably just went to the market every other day of the year. He rides into the town looking completely unimpressive. But he also rides into town knowing that he's going to his brutal, excruciating death at the hands of these very people. But yet, crowds cannot help but chase after him. But yet, the authorities demand that he is stopped, arrested, and killed, and nobody does anything. They are brazenly defined. So the question is, who really has the power here? Is it the authorities, the desperate, murderous authorities, or that man on a little donkey, the guy who looks weak and meek and submissive? And yet he is unmistakably the king, our greatest king. Who is this man that makes dead people alive again? Well, he is our greatest treasure because he is going to die. And our greatest king, who holds the power, but yet doesn't have to do anything. So what? So what? Here are three things to keep. Number one, keep up to date with Jesus. Twice today, we have seen stories about Jesus where the real meaning had to be explained afterwards. Twice, we have seen times when people's expectations and first impressions of Jesus just weren't quite right. They had to be explained again. You see, we're no different. We need to keep listening to Jesus in the Bible. We need to keep helping one another to listen to Jesus in the Bible. And let him tell us what he's like. Let him tell us what he's here to do. See, the worst thing we could do is just settle for our faulty first impression. Question for you maybe to think about afterwards. When do you find it hardest to listen to Jesus? And how could you help each other? Who do you know that could help you listen to Jesus better? Keep up to date with Jesus. Secondly, Keep it all about Jesus. Today we saw Mary, uh, who boldly said to everybody there, Jesus is our greatest treasure. Not because he raised people from the dead, but because he died for us. But that wasn't what everybody thought. Judas thought that Jesus was just a way he could get lots of stuff and look really good and respectable in the process. And I wonder if we can be a bit like that too. Because, you know, we want to be seen to be doing lots of good things, putting on big, flashy, bright light bash events. But if we're only in them for ourselves, or if we're only in them for our own church's reputation, if we're only in them, you know, so the local paper gives us a good write-up, and we forget Jesus along the way, well, what's the point? But you see, there is a simple solution that Jesus gives us all the way through. And that's to make it all about him. To have him as the person we treasure most. Keep the person who gives us the greatest gift in the whole universe himself to us, front and centre. We can go around helping people who are poor. The Bible says that's a good thing to do. We're not to stop doing that. Because Jesus says they are really important to God. It means when we're at church, we can work really hard at making it a nice place to be, welcoming people in making sure we teach, by, uh, teach about Jesus faithfully. 
but not because we just want lots of, lots of people filling this room, not because we want to look good according to the categories of our, of our worlds, but because it honours the Lord Jesus, because God says hospitality is a good thing to do, because we are treasuring Jesus who first treasured us, and we want everybody to know about him. Another question for you to think about afterwards. Where might we be at risk of forgetting to make church all about Jesus? Where might we just get all consuming of the details? I need to look at that and that alone, and I forget about the Lord Jesus who saved us. Keep it all about Jesus. And lastly, keep following King Jesus. So we saw Palm Sunday. That's the reason why it is called Palm Sunday, because of all of those palm branches. We saw King Jesus appearing weak and meek and submissive, and yet proving that he has all of the power. Will you follow after him? This is a weekend when our culture celebrates that which is spiritually dark and scary and intimidating. And yet, there is a king who is more powerful, and he looks nothing like that. He is not scary, but submissive. Will you follow our more powerful king? Because it fights at our every instinct, doesn't it? You wouldn't do it in the 100-meter race at the Olympics. You wouldn't back the person who looks really scrawny and underprepared and least impressive. But in the upside-down kingdom of God, who puts down the proud and exalts the humble and the meek, that's where true power and greatness is. And we see it lived out right here with King Jesus. The king, when he looks his absolute weakest, when he dies on the cross, is in fact having his greatest victory as he destroys sin, death, and the grave. That's real power. That's a king worth following, guys. As we heard last week, he's a king who's worth going all in for. So let's hear one another now to keep following him. As we share the Lord's Supper in just a few moments, and as we share fellowship with one another here in this church afterwards. Let us pray. Lord God, you are our powerful king and our greatest treasure. We thank you for sending the Lord Jesus. Thank you for all that he is to us. We thank you that he gave his life for us, that we might be freed from sin, that we might be freed from death. Lord, help us to treasure him in all that we do, to keep it all about him. Help us to keep following King Jesus, even when we look silly and weak in the eyes of this world, but to remember that that is, in fact, where power is. We pray all these things in the name of King Jesus. Amen.